Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and unpack it into relatable concepts. I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and today we're talking about facelift and neck lift. We'll talk about when you would consider them as an option, how they're done, what choices are involved, what to expect afterwards, what could go wrong, and how long they last. I can't wait to tell you about it. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and my opinion. It is not intended to give formal medical advice, but instead you can use it to gain insight, whether you are actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. So settle in for a listen and enjoy. Facelift is perhaps one of the most iconic procedures that comes to mind when people think about plastic surgery, or more specifically cosmetic surgery, of the head and neck region. The goal is to restore a more youthful appearance to the face and neck region, while having it look natural, yet not be obvious that surgery was performed. Nobody wants to walk by and have other people think, hmm, he's had a facelift, or hmm, she's had work done. Easier said than done sometimes since it's challenging surgically to be subtle while accomplishing significant changes. But techniques have been refined over the decades to try to further this goal. And the fact that there are truly so many different facelift methods available tells you that there isn't just one single one that is superior. Actually, it's nice for the surgeon to have multiple possibilities from which to choose because patients not only have varying wishes in terms of outcome, but also differ in specific needs relating to their diverse anatomy, different stages of aging, and individual limits for downtime as well. The first facelift was performed over 100 years ago, if you can believe it. And these days, the latest statistics from the ASPS show over 130,000 are performed per year. Now, close to 90% of those patients are female, but that corresponds to about 10% of cosmetic procedures in general being performed on men. And two-thirds of facelift patients are over the age of 55, but a full one-third of patients were aged 40 to 55. In today's world, as I'm sure you're aware, there are increasing trends for non-invasive or minimally invasive procedures, which can be wonderful to lessen the signs of aging, and people these days are even starting such procedures at younger ages. But at some point, if a patient has true skin excess and is wanting a significant change, a facelift may be the only reasonable solution if their aging process has gone past the tipping point, so to speak. You don't want to try to compensate with filler or other injectables alone, as it will not lead to a good look. Suspension threads can be used for a limited and still temporary lift, and lasers and peels may improve skin texture, but none of these are going to eliminate excess skin. By the way, if you're interested, I provide more detail about filler, Botox, and non-surgical treatments for facial lines and wrinkles in recent podcast episodes 10 and 11. So let's take a moment to discuss what I mean by facelift. What is it? And why did I include neck lift in the title of this podcast as well? A facelift is also known as a rightidectomy. Rightid meaning wrinkle. So if you interpreted the word literally, it would mean removal of wrinkles. Contrary to what you might think, a facelift does not involve the entire face as we think of it. 
It really just treats the mid to lower portions of the face and then extends down to treat the neck. So a neck lift is typically part of a standard or full facelift. Though it's possible to have an isolated neck lift without the face component, we'll discuss that option in a little bit. But surgical lift of eyelids, brow, or forehead are not part of a facelift. Now, of course, treatment of those areas can be added on while undergoing a facelift if the patient and surgeon see fit. Today, there are many different versions of facelifts, but the common component of a standard full facelift involves making an incision along the edge of either side of the face, camouflaging it by tucking it into natural skin creases and in front of the ear, and carrying it around underneath and behind the ear, then a little bit into the scalp line. This is followed by loosening the facial skin attachments over the cheek, jowl, and neck, unfolding the excess skin, and redraping the flap of skin in a natural position over the face, pulling the excess skin behind the ear where it is trimmed off, then suturing the remaining skin edges to close up. Prior to skin closure, however, many plastic surgeons will perform what's called a plication procedure, or tightening up of the fascia layer, the fascia is a thin sheet, kind of like gristle tissue, which sits on top of the facial muscles under the skin. That plication is a nice addition because it acts like an internal corset, and the facial contour is tightened on two different levels, not just by skin alone. Some people find that this helps the results last a little longer. A facelift can really achieve quite a change or improvement for the patient, and a lot more than non-surgical methods can accomplish but it is still the most invasive way to address skin excess folds and wrinkles, and that fact has to be accepted along with the associated recovery and downtime in order to get the full benefit from this procedure. You can't rush through it. So how do you know if a facelift is indicated rather than non-surgical treatments like a peel or skin tightening treatment, although those can be supplemental at some point, well, your surgeon can tell you definitively, but the most obvious way is to assess if there is truly loose excess skin in the lower face that can be pinched or redraped in an upward and back direction without distorting facial features. Peels, lasers, and skin tighteners are not able to overcome that amount of extra skin, though they may improve to a limited degree. Then once you and your surgeon decide a facelift is the right step for you, what are the choices? Well, first it must be decided how extensive the facelift will be. There are many options for shorter scar facelifts that do not extend as far as a full facelift and can be done with or without the plication step and possibly can include suspension threads. These options may be just right if only a little bit of correction is needed or desired. These may have a little less downtime too. But like anything, there is a trade-off. I have always told my patients to be aware that many facelifts give many results. If you just need a little bit of refining of the jowl or jawline, they are great. But if more correction of the whole lower face and neck are desired, a mini or short scar facelift may not be enough. Another choice to make is in regard to treatment of the neck itself. I mentioned that a neck lift is really part of a facelift, but how extensively to correct the neck is a decision that should be made as well. A procedure called a platysmaplasty may be included as needed 
and it typically requires a separate incision under the chin, though it's pretty well hidden in the future. Through that incision, a similar plication tightening, again stitched like a little corset, is performed on the fascia tissue that covers what's called the platysma muscle. Sagging of that muscle is what creates vertical bands we often see on our necks as we age, and then we start to lose that youthful angle of the neck in profile. So when internal plication stitches are placed, it can redefine that angle of the neck, which has been lost with time. This add-on portion of the surgery doesn't change downtime too much, though the neck area might feel a little tight for a while. An additional choice is whether to address areas of the face that the standard facelift does not remedy. So here is where some add-ons come into play. These could include filler or fat grafting to replace lost volume in a few places, like the cheeks and the big smile lines called nasolabial folds, and under the eyes in the tear trough region. Or the opposite, liposuction could be done to remove any bulky pockets of excess fat in the neck or cheek regions. And as I briefly mentioned before, an actual eyelid tuck or brow lift could be added if desired as well. Some surgeons will consider adding a chemical or laser peel to refine the skin's surface simultaneously. But caution has to be taken when the skin is being manipulated from both underneath and from the surface level. We don't want the skin to be overwhelmed and have a hard time healing or surviving. Sometimes it's better to save this step until later, or even do it before. And here's an interesting add-on, treatment of the earlobes. They can get pretty stretched out over time. Yes, if you're wondering, frequently wearing heavy earrings or routinely wearing earrings to bed can contribute to this stretch, but it's not the main cause. Mostly it's due to the same gradual loss of elasticity that happens with our face. So a reduction of earlobe size can be done at the time of a facelift as well. Well, I promised I'd talk about the possibility of having a neck lift alone, since many times the initial complaint from the patient is, I don't mind my face, but it's my neck that bothers me every time I look at it. It makes me look old. So it's understandable that they might only be interested in having a neck lift. And certainly this can be an isolated procedure with or without the platysmoplasty we talked about. But here's where a formal consultation is so important because often the heaviness of the lower face and the jowl region is contributing to the neck problem, to some degree at least, but may not be recognized. Trying to correct the neck without addressing the face, at least a little bit, might lead to disappointment with results and the appearance of bunched up skin by the ear when the neck is smoother but the face is not. Now, a few general questions. Where is a facelift or neck lift performed and how long does it take? Well, this depends mostly on the preference and comfort level of the surgeon, but also to some degree on the patient's wishes. Smaller procedures may be done under sedation in the office, but if a more extensive procedure is planned, this may be better located in a formal operating room under general anesthesia. And again, depending upon the extent of the procedure, it can take anywhere from an hour or two to four to six hours or more. Afterwards, the surgeon may or may not leave drains under the skin for a day or so to catch any fluid or blood that might otherwise build up and stretch or compromise the skin particularly with the bigger procedures. And, I won't kid you, there is pain after surgery, so you'll definitely want your pain medication, especially those first few days.
but it's manageable. Oftentimes the patient will be provided a light pressure garment to wear as much as possible the first few days to a couple of weeks. It looks kind of like a chin strap. This helps control swelling and it preserves new contour. So going out in public might be limited to doctor's visits for a little while. Any non-absorbable stitches that were placed in the natural crease in front of the ear are usually removed within a week to help reduce future visibility and scar care instructions are given. Scars in this region generally blend in really nicely, and any stitches behind the ear or in the scalp typically stay in a little longer as they require more healing time. Activities should be curbed to help avoid complications. In particular, no strenuous activity or working out should be performed for perhaps two to four weeks at least, again depending upon the extent of the surgery. And what about those complications? What could happen beyond some of the more common risks of surgery in general? Rarely is there a problem with infection because the face has such good blood supply compared to the rest of the body, and that helps stave off infection greatly. But that good blood supply can mean risk of bleeding. Of course, the surgeon cauterizes anything that's bleeding during surgery, but once the patient wakes up or becomes a little more active right after the procedure, bleeding could start up again. This can also happen if blood pressure goes up or there's a coughing spell too. A little bleeding is okay and it's expected, but if bleeding continues, something called a hematoma or large blood collection can develop. Now this is a problem because it will stretch out the skin, possibly to the point that it can't survive and skin slough may develop. If skin slough does occur, depending upon the size of the skin compromised, it may heal in on its own or it may require a separate procedure to help. Therefore, if a hematoma is present, often the patient will be taken back to the operating room somewhat urgently to clear it out. Luckily, this is a rarity. And keep in mind that while it is extremely uncommon to have some of the skin not survive, whether from blood supply issues or pressure on the skin from underneath, the risk of this event is much worsened by having a smoking history. Smoking decreases the oxygen available to the body's tissues, and after surgery, these tissues need all the oxygen they can get to heal effectively. In fact, many surgeons will not operate on a patient who has been smoking within four weeks of the surgery. If there has ever been a time that you are thinking about quitting the habit, this is a great incentive. Also, there are some important nerves in the face that are in the area of surgery. The surgeon takes great caution to avoid any injury of these, but despite that, problems can occur. There is often some transient numbness of the face that may take a few weeks or more to recover, but it usually does. However, some limited areas could be permanent, though again, rarely. Of more concern, however, would be problems with the motor nerves. Now, these are the ones that help move the muscles of the face. If one of these gets bruised, again, it will often resolve with time. Permanent injury, though, is possible, but luckily again, not very common. This discussion of complications is purely to inform you and not to scare you. These events are indeed rare, but it's so important to have knowledge of the possibilities, even for a relatively straightforward procedure. So when can you expect to see final results, and how long do they last? It can be difficult to appreciate results for a fair bit of time due to swelling that will occur after the procedure. 
Again, depending upon the extent of the surgery, the most significant swelling is gone within the first couple of weeks, but there is some that lingers and fluctuates throughout the day. By six weeks, you are starting to get a really good idea of final results, but three months is a safer bet. And as for how long it lasts, well, that really depends on so many variables, including the magnitude of the surgery, meaning how much was actually done, as a more extensive procedure will generally give longer lasting changes. But a big factor determining length of outcome is how fast the patient is genetically pre-programmed to lose elasticity. Like you may have heard me say before, surgery is a great way to reset the aging clock, but unfortunately it does not stop it. That darn clock starts ticking again from day one after surgery. Overall, for a full facelift, many people enjoy the resulting changes for years to come. For lesser procedures, it's a somewhat shorter time, of course. But a lot of it comes down to tolerance for change. For those who really want to keep that aging clock at bay, it's not unheard of to eventually have what's called a secondary or repeat facelift, or even tertiary. It's more challenging for the surgeon because there is now internal scar tissue to deal with, but it's usually quite doable, except in extreme cases. Overall, for the right candidates who have excess skin that's not going to improve enough with minimally invasive methods, facelift and necklift are actually wonderful procedures. The changes can be remarkable. A consultation with your plastic surgeon covering all the options will serve you well to see if it's right for you. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.